Welcome everyone. My name is Juleen Jackson. I am the National Vice President for Moms for America. And I have an honorary uh, dude of America next, next to me, my husband, Al Jackson. We teach every Wednesday night, excuse me, every Thursday night, 7.30 Mountain Standard Time, our Healing of America seminar. We are on, what are we on? Lesson number seven, I believe. We're on seminar two, section three tonight. And so I just really congratulate you. We're right in the midst of summer. I mean, you could be at your drive-in movie. You could be like shooting off the last bits of firework and sparklers, but you are here ready with your uh, workbook and pen in hand to dive into the constitution. And that says so much about you. So thank you for um, being here. So it is so wonderful to be here with you. I'm telling you, we're on the road again. We're in a, a wonderful Keokuk, Iowa. We just came from Springfield, Illinois, the home of Abraham Lincoln for the last 25 years of his life. Has anyone been to that capital city of Springfield, Illinois? And there, the Presidential Museum and the Presidential Library is there. It was a fascinating day to go through that Abraham Lincoln Presidential uh, Museum. We went to his home where he and M Mary Todd lived the last 25 years of their life. They left in uh, 1861 when he became president and he never returned alive. And I went to his tomb and it was just fascinating. I love that quote of his, a house divided against itself cannot stand. A house divided against itself cannot stand. He said that in 1858, just two, two and a half years before he became president. And, you know, I think we're feeling that in our nation as we see so much division and enmity between uh, peoples and political parties and so forth. And I think, you know, this is one of the reasons why we show up each week because we're worried about this division and this divide. And we wanna be a part of healing this land so our children, our grandchildren can continue on, you know, in the great tradition and perpetuate what these um, inspired founding fathers and mothers gave us all these years ago. And the Healing of America seminar really gives us the bedrock of God's involvement in this country. And, um, and we're learning right now the constitution from the viewpoint of the founding fathers. And then we will also study what came after our founders. And then we're, oh, seminar three, stay tuned. I find mamas are so fascinated with seminar three because it's the organizations and the groups and the people that don't love America and that systematically have attacked uh, the home, parents, religion, schools, the moral fiber of this country because they, uh, they wanted to change it fundamentally. And we have seen some of these attacks in our lifetime. And, it, and it, it's going to, we're really going to spell out in seminar three, how we have become broken, why we are in the mess, so to speak, that we are today. And then seminar four is the best. It's all about well, what do we do? How do we heal ourselves? our families, our communities, our schools, our state, our nation, even the world. And so um, this is just such a hopeful, empowering seminar. And I really salute you for hanging in there. 
and God rewards efforts. So as you, you know, as you keep coming, I hope that as we evoke the heavens each week, just like you did, Leslie, that these ideas and these little bursts of inspiration will come to us about what we can do. Last week, as I was uh, pledging, that the idea came to me that, uh, you know, in our morning devotional we have with our family, I want to start to pledge with my children because my kids don't pledge at school. Even our youngest daughter who goes to a private Catholic school, she said, Mom, we don't say the pledge every day. And so, you know, just gently these little ideas will dispel upon your heart and mind. And, and one of those little ideas came, did you know we're going to pledge in the devotional? Oh, <laughs> All these years we've been doing morning devotional with the kids and we've never pledged. And, I, and I'm, we're, we're going to pledge. Uh, we're going to add that into our little Bible study and our little principles of liberty. And, and so there we go. So Viv, can you pull down Legsasar? I hope Legsasar, that acronym is just rolling off your tongue now. That's the uh, acronym to help us memorize the seven articles in the Constitution. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about the legislative branch and, you know, the 20 enumerated powers of Congress. No more, 20, no less, no more, but 20 things that um, our founders intended Congress to do. And, uh, and, and we also talked about how the executive branch and the judicial branch has really usurped some of the power from the legislative branch. And the legislative branch has abdicated that power, has given, you know, uh, greater power than was intended to the executive and the judicial branch. And last week, we talked about the executive branch and how, how way more powerful it is uh, than what the founders had intended. Did anyone watch that 13 minute video, the most powerful political office in the world? It was a YouTube video, 13 minutes, the most powerful political office in the world, just in TJC. Um, if, if you haven't had a chance to watch it, I would really recommend have that be part of your homework this week. It's only 13 minutes and it helps you to understand what the founders intended, those six powers or six responsibilities of the president and how it, the offices become so much more than what they intended. And then we talked about the a judiciary, the judicial branch. And, and remember Thomas Jefferson was worried, our founders were worried that they didn't put enough checks and balances on the, um, the, the court systems. And we're certainly seeing that now as courts are overstepping their jurisdictions and legislating from the bench. They're actually making law from the bench. They were supposed to be the guardians and the interpreters of the law, not the makers of the law. And so did uh, anyone get a chance to um, watch that Thomas Clarence's documentary? Clarence Thomas. I'm sorry, Clarence. Tom, Thomas Clarence. What Clarence, Clarence, Clarence Thomas. Oh, I've written that backwards. Clarence Thomas's documentary. It just came out two years ago. It's so good. Created equal in my own words. It's on 2BTV, T-U-B-I TV. It's free. You can just pull it up. It's two hours. He's such a private justice, but he kind of narrates and is interviewed all throughout the two hours. It's I would really recommend it as maybe a movie night for you and your um, children or husband. It was, it's great. So um, anyways, okay. So today, Viv, can you put up Legislature one more time? We're going to go through, uh, we're in section three of seminar two. We're going to go through articles four, five, six, and seven, and then the 10 
first 10 amendments, which are known as the Bill of Rights, and that is what our founding fathers gave us, okay? So what we're discussing tonight is, is the very things that our founding fathers said were struck off by the hand of God. Um, these seven, amend seven articles and then the Bill of Rights, which is the first 10 amendments. So we're going to discuss uh, states' rights, and Al is going to talk about how you change, amend the Constitution, what the supremacy, cla supremacy clause, what's the supreme law of the land, and, and what it took to ratify this document, the Constitution. Okay, so let's get started in uh, Section 3. Um, Moms and dads, if I could just recommend this one page outline by Sharon Cray from the Thomas Jefferson Center and Vivian will send the link again. We're gonna go through, we're going through the constitution at like light speed. I'm telling you, if you can just print off this one page document and keep it close and just review it, well, go through it once a day, you will have a basic understanding of the Constitution, what's in it. And if you have a question, you kind of would know how to access and find it. It's so helpful. I've taught my children the Constitution from this one page outline. And also, if we ever are cruising through and you're like, Julie didn't cover that, or I don't really understand what she just said. This is such a good resource. It's, it's a, a clause by clause explanation of what they intended uh, for the constitution. And it also covers uh, what the founders didn't give us, but it, it gives us a thorough understanding of, of what, how they would have felt about certain amendments based on, on their writings with the first 10 amendments and, and the articles. Really good resource to help you to know what our founders intended for the constitution. Okay, so prior, let's get rolling prior to um, the adoption of the Constitution in 1789, we know that the states had been operating under the Articles of Confederation. And what transpired there is the states began to treat each other like the enemy. They were acting like little independent nations, almost those original 13 uh, states under the Articles of Confederation. And so the founders included this Article 4, uh, regarding states, relationships between the states in order to solve some of the problems that they had arisen uh, under the original 13 states. And the founders also wanted to cover maybe any additional problems as new states were going to come into the union now. So there are four sections in Article 4. And the first section, and remember, if you didn't have our little uh, handbook here, if you just have our, your pocketbook constitution and just turn to Article 4, we're just going right through the constitution. So you could follow class today if you just have a little pocket constitution. So in Section 1 of Article 4 regarding the states, it talks about how the official acts of each state must receive full faith and credit by all the other states. So that means that each state should respect the laws in the, in the individual states, respect legal decisions, respect court records, driver's licenses, marriages, divorce, that kind of thing. So section two of article four talks about privileges and immunities. The citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in several in the several states. So it talks about a natural law, a, a natural right of citizens and acquired rights. So they in the constitution deem natural rights 
of citizens to be an example of being able to travel freely between states or to set up businesses in different states or to sue in courts or have protection of property as you travel through various states. It, but it does not include the acquired rights of citizens in each state. Now, an acquired right is something that gives a citizen of that individual state an advantage. Uh, and they have typically paid into the tax base. This is why, you know, you have certain advantages when you're resident of a state. And that would include such things as hunting, fishing, uh, licenses, being able to attend state-supported colleges, trucking over roads, uh, and certain fees that might be charged to people outside of the state. Acquired rights uh, also include those obtained by state licensing that wouldn't need to be approved or recognized by other states. Like I had mentioned, driver's licenses, marriage licenses, concealed weapon uh, permits. Now, acquired rights do not include actions that a particular state might legislate as illegal or inappropriate in their state, such as gambling or same-sex marriage or plural marriage, prostitution, smoking, drinking, child pornography. So an, a natural right is like an inalienable, God-given right, a natural right versus an acquired right, which is a privilege just by being a uh, you know, citizen of that state. So same-sex marriage then is not a natural right, it is an acquired right. So licensing of it was therefore, up until uh, about 10 years ago, licensing of it was up, it was up to individual states. So, now, legislators could see trouble coming down the horizon when it came to same-sex marriage. Uh, so in 1996, do you remember when Congress passed DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, in, in which it said that states didn't have to recognize same-sex marriage? And, um, and it, it defined marriage as between a man and a woman. But the problem is when you codify a natural right, an inalienable right that God has already defined and spoken on, you now open it up for the courts to interpret, interpret or possibly redefine that natural right. And that is exactly what happened because the LGBT community um, sued uh, went to court to say that that uh, DOMA Act that was passed in 1996 discriminated against them. And, uh, and then things began to get really sticky in 2004 when the state of Massachusetts performed the first same-sex marriage. Now, other states at this point began to push back in accepting this type of marriage. So if a same-sex couple moved out of Massachusetts and moved into, let's say, Wyoming, who, you know, didn't recognize that marriage, this is where the rub began. And so the controversy would be ended nine years later from that first same-sex marriage in uh, Massachusetts. In 2013, the Supreme Court, on a decision five to four, legalized gay marriage. And you know the rule of law, which they pointed to in order to, to get involved in this, was the 14th Amendment. 
Remember, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment all came primarily after the Civil War. The 13th Amendment abolished slavery in 1865. The 14th Amendment, which the modern-day Supreme Court used uh, as the rule of law to defend gay marriage, was really to give former slaves natural citizen rights, uh, uh, that they had all the rights and equal protection of the law that you know white citizens did. That's what the 14th Amendment and then the 15th Amendment gave uh, former slaves black citizens the right to vote. So the court said under that equal protection clause in Amendment 14 that was supposed to protect former black slaves, they were now going to protect same-sex marriages to have equal protection of recognition of their marriage in all 50 states. And so that is an example of the courts misapplying or misinterpreting <laughs> the original intent of the law and applying it to something that was never really meant to be held or heard by the federal government. Because remember, the founders intended that if a same-sex marriage or marriage is not endorsed, the marriage is not even mentioned in the constitution, let alone same-sex marriage. But if certain things issues were not addressed in the constitution, then the Supreme Court or the government should not rule on it. It should go to the states to determine. Same thing with voting. Same thing with voting, yeah, good point. And so you can see that uh, this is an application of a, a misapplication of the law that we have seen in our lifetime. I think I, I wanna emphasize one point that Jolene made regarding putting in the code what the Lord has already spoken on, the, the nature of a republic, and, and I would invite you all to take notes here, the, the, the notion of a republic is based on natural law, God's law. So the founders had envisioned the republic being one that if the Lord had already spoken in that area or defined in that certain area, then government need not bother with it. So during that time span that Julene referred to, there was a race by every state to go ahead and put into code what the definition of marriage is, what the Lord had already done. He's already defined what marriage is. It's not up to man to decide that. The Lord's already decided that. So as soon as you did that, and it was well-intentioned, well-intentioned, noble efforts, but misguided in the sense that, as Julene indicated, as soon as you make it legislation, then it's automatically become subject to the court based on the lawsuit. And then the power to interpret became the power to destroy. So we need to be mindful of that because now there's a move afoot among many states to codify religious liberty. And they're all well-intentioned and they're noble endeavors, but the Lord's already spoken on that issue. So what they're doing is moving down the same path that we did with marriage and opening up ourselves for interpretation by those who are non-believers. Okay, very good. Okay, section three of article four just talks about uh, the creation of new states, how new states can be created by dividing existing states or combining existing states. And we already talked about this, I believe two weeks ago, 
um, that, that they were very concerned that the new states coming on would come on with equal footing. And, and that happened until uh, several decades later when some of these Western states started coming into the union and uh, the federal government began to retain vast quantities of their land. All right. And so, you know, you continually see Western states at odds with the federal government to get back access to, you know, large amounts of land that the federal government holds, like Nevada, uh, Alaska, Utah, Oregon, Idaho, the federal government owns over 50% of those states' lands. But yet every state east of the Mississippi, those states own all of their land except maybe 1%. And so you can see how those Western states are at a disadvantage to the, the Eastern states. Okay, and then section number four of article four talks about the United States shall guarantee a Republican form of government, all right? And Al just talked about that. They knew our founders gave us a Republic, which was gonna be based on the rule of law, which is based on God's law. So they needed the people to be righteous in order to continue to make a good law and 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 uh, stick to the rule of law. Remember, a democracy, and oftentimes you'll hear people say we're a democracy. We're not a democracy because a democracy is where the majority rules, and oftentimes that majority is based on their feelings or the emotions of the day. You know, and that's where we get bad law when we're basing our, our laws on the whims of men or our emotions. Whereas when you base your law on the rule of law or God's law, which is unmovable, like, for example, murder will always be punishable before God. And so uh, and uh, but the founders knew that the most reliable basis for a sound government, a strong government and, and just human relations is based on. Um, natural law, God's law. And it says that in the Declaration of Independence, it, it mentions God and natural law and the laws of nature. And so, you know, but the, the, the only way we're going to, you know, stay based in rooted in God's law is if its citizens are morally strong and virtuous, and we elect morally strong and virtuous leaders. And the only way that we're going to do that is if there's religion, because religion has us in the word and has us studying and has us looking to God. And so I just told you the first four principles in the 5,000 year leap. These are the 28 principles that our founders used to establish this country. Such a good book. I would recommend memorizing those 28 principles because when you can spew principles instead of emotion, you will always speak from a position of of greater strength and authority rather than just emotional arguments sometimes that you hear people get into really powerful there. And so anyways, okay, so I'm going to turn it over for articles five, six, and seven with Al. Okay, great. Article five is the amending process. The founders had the foresight to add to the constitution, a process for amending that document. And the premise behind this notion that the founders put in the constitution, they wanted two things. They knew that time over time, things would change. And what they wanted was to provide an opportunity for amendments to be added to the constitution. So they put forth this amending process. And the two words that I would invite you to write in your notes are to improve and perpetuate. 
Those were the two words that the founders had in mind when they thought about amending the Constitution to improve and perpetuate, not gut and destroy, which some of these amendments have done. Julian referred to the 14th Amendment that was poorly written. And then you've got the 16th Amendment and the 17th Amendment. And we'll talk about that in greater detail in our next lesson and then when we get to seminar three, but improve and perpetuate was what the founders had envisioned. So the founders learned through the Articles of Confederation that they had made a mistake that they could only amend the governing document with the consent of all the states, all the states. And several times during the Revolutionary War, it only took one state to rise up and disagree. And so whatever they were discussing, whatever proposal they were moving forward with were stopped in the tracks. So they had to change that. Now, there are two ways that the Constitution can be amended, but only the first one that I'm going to discuss right here is the only one that's ever been used. And the first method is a proposed amendment is initiated by the Congress. And when that amendment is put forward, two-thirds of the House and two-thirds of the Senate must pass it. And then once it's approved, then two, three-fourths of the states need to ratify this, three-fourths, and that's 38 states out of the 50. So the 16th and 17th Amendment, actually all amendments, so 11 to 27, were initiated by the Congress. And the 16th and 17th in particular, the states were starting to get excited and wanted to add these amendments to the Constitution. So momentum was growing. They were getting close to the two thirds that that needed to do to have the federal government or the Congress initiate a constitutional convention. And what the federal government saw, the Congress saw at that time, this momentum building, so they went ahead and did it themselves. So that's when they only had two thirds. And then the number bullet number two there, they have to be approved by three fourths of the state legislature. So two thirds vote in the House and Senate, three fourths by the state legislatures. So the second method is to have two thirds of the state legislatures, which is 34 states, petition the Congress for a constitutional convention. Now there's an organization that's out there right now called the Convention of the States, and they're going state by state, encouraging states to pass resolutions, encouraging a constitutional convention. I think the number right now is maybe 15, but they are actively involved in all 50 states. And I would encourage you to go to the Convention of States website to take a look at it and see if that's something you might be a part of or want to join in terms of the, some of the efforts that they're putting forth to get these states to move forward with a constitutional convention. So once the two thirds of the states petition Congress, Congress lays out the procedures for the constitutional convention. So Congress calls upon the states to send delegates to what we call a constitutional convention and they, they name the time and the place for this convention. The convention of delegates from the various states can then prepare and propose amendments. And what this, the Congress will do, will lay out the process in terms of, we have to adhere 
this constitutional convention to this one particular proposed amendment or several if that's what the states want to want to convene and discuss but it's limited to what they all agree upon in terms of what the proposed amendment is so any approved amendment proposed amendment must have also be approved by three-fourths of the states so the constitutional convention gets together and then once they come up with that proposed amendment then it goes out to the states and three-fourths have to ratify and that number again is 38 states so let's talk about article six the federal supremacy clause probably one of the most misunderstood by governors and state legislatures across this country so the founders set out three areas that needed to be spelled out specifically in the constitution having to do with national debt the supremacy clause supremacy or federal law and then loyalty to the central government and that's an important feature because jeline highlighted that these independent states were acting like little independent countries so they wanted to make sure that the states even though they created the federal government would be loyal to it in those in article according to article one section eight those 20 enumerated powers so the first one had to do with debt the U.S. will pay back what it owes to foreign countries. And under the Confederation, the states had accrued debts approximately around $25 million as a result of the Revolutionary War. And the additional debts of the federal government accrued since the Declaration of Independence brought the total debt number in the United States at that time to $79 million. So this provision announced to the world that the United States was open for business, but we were going to pay back our debts. Section two of Article six has to do with the supremacy of federal law over the states. And there are three areas of federal law to which the laws and actions of the states are subordinate. They are the Constitution, laws established by the federal government, and treaties, treaties in, entered into by the United States. There's a key feature here in letter B that I'm gonna read verbatim and it's in your workbook that I, I wanna clarify here. It says, note that there is no reference here to executive agreements by the president with foreign powers, no reference to executive orders, no reference to edicts by regulatory agencies and no reference to edicts by the Supreme Court which constitute judicial legislation. So, executive orders actually don't have to be adhered to by the states when the supreme court starts to legislate from the bench the, the states can ignore it and the key phrase here is the question depends on what the founders meant by quote laws of the united states made in pursuance of the provisions set forth in the constitution in other words if the federal government passes a law that goes along with their 20 enumerated powers in Article One, Section 8, then that is the law of the land and states have to adhere to it. Anything outside that the states can ignore. And that's what most governors and most state legislatures do not know. It's that particular provision, pursuance of the provisions set forth in the Constitution, Article One, Section 8. The Declaration of Independence can be boiled down to one word. I heard this on a podcast recently and the word was no. No, I'm not doing that. Nope, nope, we're not doing that. 
thank you, but no thank you. And so that's what we need in terms of more courage from our governors and our state legislatures to say no to the federal government. And number three, section three, to ensure complete loyalty to the union, all senators, representatives, officials, and judges of the United States, as well as officials of the individual states required to take an oath of affirmation that they would uphold the United States Constitution. Okay, Article 7, the last article is ratification. This article provides that the ratification of the convention would only take nine states, and that shall be sufficient for the establishment of this constitution between the states, so ratifying the same, so just nine states. And then the other point that I'd like to highlight, the new constitution was only to be binding upon those states that actually ratified it. And here in the summary section, I'm gonna let Julene introduce the Bill of Rights, but before I do, the form, this is the form in which the Constitution was finally submitted to Congress and the states in September 1787, and the Constitution was adopted by 11 of the states by 1788. And after elections were held in these states, the new Constitution was considered to be in full force and in effect on March 4th, 1789. However, President Washington was not inaugurated until April 30th, and then after that, both North Carolina and Rhode Island join the Union. Okay, Jelene, over to you to okay. the Bill of Rights. Thanks, sweetheart. Hey, you're doing really well. So, you know, Al and I, I mentioned we're in Keokuk, Iowa tonight because we're doing a a cross-country road trip, like 3,000 miles, <laughs> starting in Washington, D.C. Ask, ask Julene ask really? how many miles she's driven so far. <laughs> well, I haven't driven any miles yet, but keep hope alive, honey. I might. <laughs> she brought a pillow and a blanket. <laughs> so Al every day drives about, what, five to seven to eight hours. <laughs> so you've done really well, honey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can, I'm tired. <laughs> I can be in the car studying and poor little Al has to drive and, and study with his book <laughs> cricked up on his knee there. But um, so we are now going into the Bill of Rights, the, ten, the first 10 amendments that our founding fathers gave us. Now, you know, uh, uh, several of the founders weren't really sure that we needed a Bill of Rights, but we had to because some of the large states weren't going to ratify the constitution if we if further individual rights they felt were not specified. And so, you know, many of the founders felt that under this limited form of government that they wanted to create, that we didn't need to spell out all our rights. We just need to, you know, say that only limited and defined powers should be given to the government and all the other rights are to be deferred back to the states and to the people. But nevertheless, there were enough states that wanted additional do you Do you think that was out. a, maybe a flaw, maybe something that opened up the door, slippery slope yeah. to all these amendments? Yeah. Maybe. Well, maybe, maybe. I mean, uh, Alexander Hamilton felt that there was a danger in making a list of individual rights, because what if some of our rights are left off the list that might be presumed that we, that we don't have those rights, we've somehow forf forfeited the rights if the rights aren't 
spelled out and identified. And so they were worried about that, but nevertheless, the Bill of Rights did come, come to pass. And really this American Bill of Rights that we have today is a legacy of thousands of Englishmen through the ages who suffered torture, hanging, beheading, imprisonment, being burned alive in an effort to preserve those basic human rights of freemen that were to be begin to become set forth starting with the Magna Carta in 1215 in England and the Petition of Rights in 1628 in England. All these freedom documents, rights of individuals began to appear in some of these English documents. And we have our English uh, forefathers to thank the, the writ of habeas corpus in 1679 saying, you know, we can't just be thrown in a dungeon in a jail and, and never heard of it again. And this is what, what throughout history had been done. And then the English Bill of Rights in 1689. So our founders pulled phrases that we associate with freedom in our Bill of Rights today from some of these in, inspired uh, documents that begin to spell out the rights of humans uh, in these English documents. So the founders actually would write a preamble to the Bill of Rights um, that was going to be really not only a declaration of our rights, but mostly a prohibition against the government. So we don't hear about the preamble to the Bill of Rights, but it's there. And it says in order to prevent misconstruction or abuse of the federal government's power, further declaratory and restrictive clauses have been added. And so remember Thomas Jefferson said, bind them down from mischief with the chains of the constitution. And he really wanted, uh, by that statement, was to prevent the government from further abuse and power. And so the very first amendment, our very first freedom that our founders meant to uh, underscore here was regards to religion. And it's, it's stated this way, Congress shall make no law, pro, uh, law respecting the establishment of religion. Now, remember, they had just broken away from King George III. And in England, they had a prescribed federal church, church state, the Church of England. Everyone had to subscribe to that. They did not want there to be a, a, a church, a state, a, a federal government church. All right. And so um, and then they also say or prohibit or prohibits the free exercise thereof. So Congress shall make no laws respecting the establishment of religion, meaning a, a church state, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, all right? So we're gonna talk about what did the founders mean by religion and being able to exercise your faith. The framers of the constitution forbade the Congress to make any laws respecting the establishment of religion thus leaving the states free to do so. And several of the states did establish a state religion, okay? So when we say state, it's interchangeable. Uh, when they say, and we'll talk about this in a minute, they meant the federal government. They didn't mean states. Our founding fathers wanted individual states to determine how they were going to you know, establish religions in their states. They didn't want the federal government determining a national religion. 
Okay, so they explicitly forbade Congress to abridge the free exercise, however, of religion, thus giving actual religious observance a rhetorical emphasis that fully accords with the special concern we know that they had for religion. They wanted religion to be free to make its own way, but neither did they intend to have irreligion made into a favored state church. So I just want to explain and clarify something that has been a, a misnomer and something that has been misunderstood through the courts. When um, Thomas Jefferson uh, served in the Virginia legislature, he actually introduced a bill to have a day of fasting and prayer. Now, if you study Thomas Jefferson, you know that he believed in God. He believed in Jesus Christ. For heaven's sakes, he's written the Jefferson Bible. And so fast forward, when he became president in 1802, a group of um, Baptists from Danbury, uh, Connecticut came to him and they wanted him to get involved in an argument that the state of Connecticut was having about which should be their state religion. And Thomas Jefferson, actually, they, they wrote him and he wrote back. He said, the constitution has created a wall of separation between the state and the church. Now, he didn't mean individual states, he meant the federal government. The Constitution has created a wall of separation between the state and the government. So he intended this to mean that the federal government shouldn't intermeddle in religious matters, that it was the state's responsibility that all religions receive equal treatment, or it's the state's to determine how, how religion, uh, different denominations should, should be held in each individual state. Now, 150 years later from that statement that Jefferson made, in Everson versus the Board of Education in 1947, the Supreme Court quoted Jefferson's metaphor in that letter in 1802. And they said, quoted as saying, saying neither the state or the federal government can set up a church or pass laws that aid religion or prefer one. So the Supreme Court used this metaphor of Jefferson in 1802 as an excuse to meddle. And what really what they did is they distorted what he said and they misapplied what he said because of course Jefferson wanted the states to intervene in religious matters. They wanted, our founders wanted all religions to be encouraged in order to pr promote the moral fiber and the tone of the people and in order to ensure our republic based on natural law, which is God's law. So, you know, it, it would have been impossible for the states to have done this if there was supposed to be in this impen impenetrable wall that the su Supreme Court in 1947 said that existed between church and state. And so Jefferson's wall of separation was intended for the federal government. So the Supreme Court's application of this Jefferson's metaphor to the states was definitely not in keeping to what Jefferson's original intent is. So just so you understand when you hear people go, well, there's supposed to be a separation between church and state. No, there's supposed to be a separation between the establishment of uh, a religion and the federal government. That's what our founding fathers intended with that establishment clause. And so um, 
our founders, and you, and you know, we also know that in uh, 1787, our founding fathers, uh, when they put forth the Northwest Ordinance, clearly said that they wanted religion, morality, and knowledge taught in the schools. So when people say, well, we can't legislate morality, well, our founding fathers wanted morality and religion taught in the schools because that's the only way we're going to stay righteous and morally strong and be able to maintain this republic form of government that they were going to give us. They knew that we needed morality and we needed religion and they wanted those things taught in the schools so these up and coming generations would be able to maintain the government that our founding fathers gave us. So our founders used this term religion in the broadest sense and meaning just basic beliefs that all mankind can agree upon. And Thomas Jefferson or um, Benjamin Franklin in um, the 5,000 year leap principle number five talks about these five tenets of sound religion. And um, they are, and, and he said these tenets kind of make up and constitute the religion of America or, or a universal religion our founding fathers called it. And I think it's interesting that Ben Franklin says these five tenets make up sound religion, which denotes that there's possibly unsound religions out there too that he maybe was anticipating. So these five tenets of all sound religions would entail that there is a self-evident truth that the creator has made all of us. Okay, just look around. <laughs> a, divine, a divine being created us. And that two, the creator has revealed a moral code which defines what is right and wrong. And principle nine here uh, says that the founders knew that this moral code God revealed uh, in order to protect these inalienable rights that he gave us, he uh, revealed certain principles of divine law. So this moral code could be found in divine law, which would be uh, the Bible, scripture. Number three, the creator holds mankind responsible for the way that we treat each other. God has created us. We're going to have to give an accounting for him, uh, for our, our treatment of him and treatment of each other. And number four of sound religion, the fourth tenet that we will all live beyond this earth experience. And the last one is that in the next life, individuals will be judged by their creator for our conduct in this lifetime. So this is what the founding fathers had to say about these five tenets. Samuel Adams, who we know would uh, be known as the father of the Revolutionary War, said that these basic beliefs, which constitute the religion, these, these constitute the religion of America. John Adams called these five tenets the general principles on which the American civilization was founded. Thomas Jefferson called these basic beliefs the principles in which God has united us all. You know, I think if you're Jewish, those are good. If you are a Muslim, if you are Mormon, if you are Catholic, all those faiths Hindu. share those five Beliefs. Yes. So the founding fathers campaigned for the equality of all religions, both Christian and non-Christian, but they wanted the federal government excluded from the problems relating to religions and churches. You know, they felt that it would be catastrophic if the federal government established a national policy on a religion or disestablishing the denomination, which um, some states now were starting to adopt. 
And so they wanted the Supreme Court as well as Congress to be excluded from the jurisdiction over religions. It's interesting through the years as, as the courts have gotten involved in um, protecting irreligion that athe atheism today is the fourth largest worldwide religion. The fourth largest worldwide religion is atheism. And it certainly doesn't adhere to the five tenets of sound religion that our founding fathers considered a true religion. You know, in George Washington in his farewell address, farewell address, um, he spoke of these religious principles that this nation was based on as indispensable supports of good government. He said that there is no security for property, for reputation, for life, if the sense of religious obligation is lost among the people. And I remember Alex de Tocqueville, who wrote the book, Alexis, Alexis de Tocqueville in 18, the early 1800s. He was a French author, Democracy in America, 1828. 1828, Democracy in America. He came over to America and he said, um, and that book is really one of the most definitive studies in American culture and, and our constitutional system. And this is his observation that he made about Americans and religion. He said, religion in America takes no direct part in the government society, but it must be regarded as the first of their political institutions. I am certain that they hold it to be indispensable to the maintenance of Republican institutions. And so we began to see, however, in the 1900s, 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, the Supreme Court began to get involved in this area and they began to pull religion out of schools by court edict in 1962. They began to eliminate any Bible reference or reading and for heaven's sakes, we lived in Oregon. Our children weren't even allowed to pledge allegiance because of the mention uh, of God, which would definitely go against what our founders intended uh, in as much as they knew that they wanted these kids to be taught religion, morality, and knowledge in the schools in order to ultimately be able to perpetuate what they were going to give us this most remarkable representative government based on the voice of the people never seen before in modern times. Okay, the second part of the First Amendment also talks about free speech. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or press. And we are really seeing this violated today with the cancel culture. If something is unpopular and enough people don't like it, they'll just censor, they'll censor you, they'll shut you down. I mean, for heaven's sakes, little moms for America, we've been banned from Twitter. We've been shut down and our Facebook page is continually being warned because they deem the things that we teach as dangerous speech. And so, um, it's, it's a really slippery slope. Now, our founders knew that there needed to be some reasonable restrictions on freedom of speech, but they wanted those regulations and standards of propri propriety to be handled by who? The states, uh, uh, those that were closest to the people in order to eliminate any abuses where they saw saw fit. So recently, I, I saw a point of law, uh, there was a district court that ruled on um, a court case and he cited uh, this freedom of speech as the rule of law. And it had to do with a transgender woman who wanted to run 
for Miss America in the state and, um, and they uh, wouldn't allow her. And so it went to a district court. Uh, it, it was Judge Mossman in February. And he ruled that he said, Miss America is an organization that promotes a message and seeks to maintain control of that message and should not be required to alter it. So could the rule of law on which he based uh, you know, his decision that only a natural born woman should be able to run for Miss America, not a transgender woman. And so, uh, I, and he, then he also went on to say, in a society where women receive further or, or receive fewer opportunities than men, women deserve a platform to compete and speak and celebrate. And so it's interesting that I uh, heard about four weeks ago that Mrs. Nevada is a transgender, Ms. Nevada is a transgender woman. She just won. And so obviously this contradicts this February decision that was held by this judge for Miss America to only accept natural born women. And, and, and he based it on uh, the freedom of speech from Mrs. America to be able to maintain control of their message. And, and, um, and so we shall see, we shall see what happens there. Okay, so I think I'm going to, oh, and, and lastly, in, in that First Amendment, it also talks about Congress shall make no law abridging the rights of people to assemble to assemble peaceably. And we have seen in the last year and a half, all kind of groups coming together. And there's been some, I think, uh, selective outrage. Now we live in Washington, DC, and we've seen a lot of rioting and looting and destroying and burning over the course of the last year and a half, federal buildings, statues uh, desecrated, pulled down, churches uh, burned. And uh, and we've also, been a first-hand participants to that January 6th. Um, we didn't, we didn't participate. <laughs> we, were, we, were, we there. were there. We, we were, were there. there. We were peaceably assembling right. uh, on January right. 6th. <laughs> Vivian might have gone inside, but we didn't. <laughs> but, you know, uh, that was, that piece of, that over a million people, it seemed like there were close to a million people and a, a couple hundred either broke into the Capitol or it would look like they were led in. But uh, that that was uh, called an insurrection. Al likes to say the insurrection that started and ended in one day, and which led to a president of the United States being impeached. Although we were pretty darn impressed with almost a million people that peaceably assembled that day. But but yeah, in our own neighborhood, all the storefronts were boarded up for months because of the looting, rioting, and burning, and no one seemed to think that was you know an unpeaceful um, occurrence. And so it's interesting what people are defining as uh, peaceably assembling in uh, this time. Okay, Al is going to take it over. Amendments two through eight. Yeah, we're we're going to go through this in short order. So I think the first two amendments of the Bill of Rights are probably the most talked about amendments today, the First Amendment, and then even more so the Second Amendment, what has to do with the right to bear arms. So the Second Amendment reads, quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So the federal government has no business in this area whatsoever. Now the militia of a state is that body of citizens 
which under law can be called up by the governor or Congress to protect the rights and security of the people. Now, many Americans are confused by what a militia is because a lot of them, they confuse the state militia with the National Guard, which is a specialized reserve corps in each state mm -hmm. trained at federal expense for immediate service. So referred to as a select militia by the framers, when the Congress spoke of a militia, they meant the entire populace capable of bearing arms and not to any formal group such as the National Guard. So what do I mean by that? That's in our manual here, number two, under the US Code, Title 10, Section 31. The militia of each state includes all able-bodied males at least 17 years of age and under 45 years of age. That's what constitutes the militia. And in letter B, the right to bear arms was considered by the founders to be an inalienable right, our inherent right to protect ourselves, to defend ourselves. So when we were in Williamsburg a couple of weeks ago, James Madison talked about public rights versus natural rights. And he said, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness were natural rights. But then he proceeded to tell the crowd that the right to bear arms is a public right. And he actually misspoke. I didn't have a chance to correct him because after he spoke, he took off. But I'll remember that the next time I see Mr. Madison, that those rights are inalienable, that we have a right to, to connect it with the pres preservation of life, liberty, and property. And Notice that any regulation of fire firearms was left exclusively under the control of the states. And this is one of the amendments that the states, actually one of the Bill of Rights that the states all unanimously agreed to when they sent in their list of what they wanted to be included in the Bill of Rights. So when Washington moved forward with the ratification of the Constitution, they encouraged the states to send in what they thought would be credible things to put in the Bill of Rights for consideration. And, and actually 189 amendments came in. James Madison took that list of 189, whittled it down to 14, and then the states decided on the first 10, the founders, the first 10, the Bill of Rights. Okay, so today, Americans are the best armed civilian population in the world. And when this was printed, the number of private citizens owning arms was estimated to be around 50 million. I believe that number is about 80 million. It's probably close to 90 to 100 million at this point. Actually, Al. What number is it? It is 393 million. So the, firearms. Num so the number of firearms in the possession of private citizens is estimated between what two numbers? 393 million. If, okay. you, if you Google it, it came up several times uh, okay. from different sources. Okay. And I'm sure that number's gone up quite a bit since November 2020. Okay. Number two. And can I just say that? That equals 42% of U.S. households own at least one firearm. Wait a minute, 390 million people. There's only 300. And no, 393 firearms. Oh, firearms. Okay. Yeah. All right. So okay. at least 42% uh, of U.S. households right. own That's at right, least one firearm. That's right, because we have three. Firearm. We have three. We have exactly. a 38 to 22, and I just bought a shotgun. 
12 gauge. Okay, good. Wow. All right. In nations where the leaders, and this is an interesting note, it's in your manual here. The first thing the government wants to do when they are embarking upon suppressing the people by depriving them of their property and freedom, they begin with disarming them. They go after the guns first. And there's two ways that they do this. First is they ask them to register their guns and impose a heavily penalty on those who do not. Got to register your gun first. And number two, sometimes they deliberately provoke rioting and violence and use this as an excuse to confiscate all arms that are in the possession of private citizens. And then thirdly, and this is something I've added, is the cost of ammunition. I don't know if you all are gun owners, but buying and looking for ammunition has been very difficult and it's very expensive. And there's rumors that are going around that the government's actually buying up the ammunition. I don't know the truth to that or what have you, but I do know that ammunition is few and far between. So Orrin Hatch made a statement about the gun control advocates that I'd like to share with you all today. He says, the making of America captures statements of the founders with regard to their intention to ensure the entire populace of the nation would be capable of bearing arms and not to any formal group such as what is today called the National Guard. Because what you find today, people who are arguing for gun control refer back to the Second Amendment where we talk about a well-regulated militia, meaning only the National Guard or this militia, quote unquote, National Guard, should be able to bear arms. No, the founders wanted Americans to be able to have their rights not infringed with regard to bearing arms. So the Third Amendment, as Julene highlighted before, was based on personal experience. So the Third Amendment reads as follows, no soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. So what we found were that European kings throughout history used the practice of quartering troops in the homes of the people to save money or to quell a rebellion. And this opens the door to abuse. And it's a violation of the Fourth Amendment, which talks about, which was designed to protect the privacy of the people in their homes and in their possessions. And in letter A in your booklet, it says privacy is an essential element associated with an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is also an essential element of feeling secure in the enjoyment of the inalienable rights guaranteed under the Constitution. So many of these rights today, unfortunately, have been impaired as the government has gotten bigger and bigger. And so we find the IRS can go into your home or your place of business and disrupt your life. OSHA, other federal agencies can come into your place and look at your private papers, your how you do your finances and so forth. And so those are violations of your Fourth Amendment rights to privacy. And then we talk about unreasonable search and seizures. Officers should have a warrant Warrants are required to protect the basic rights of freedom and privacy. And for an officer to obtain a warrant of arrest, he or she must be able to show the judge three, thing, judge three things. A, probable cause, 
or reasonable evidence that the warrant is justified, that there's probable cause to believe that the person named in the warrant is responsible for a crime, and then the officer must take an oath or give affirmation to the judge that what they're advocating for is true. Okay, another amendment that we hear quite a bit is the Fifth Amendment. And the Fifth Amendment has five parts, each of which pertains to life, liberty, and property. And this is really the protection for the accused. So no person can be tried twice for the same offense. There's no such thing as double jeopardy, or there shouldn't be. Two, no person, can, no person may be required to testify against himself, meaning I plead the fifth. We've heard that before, I plead the fifth. I'm reading a book right now called Killing the Mob, written by Bill O'Reilly, that talks about the mafia. I mean, it's a fascinating book. And when they're called before Congress, or they always use, they plead the fifth because they don't want to in, in, incriminate themselves. Uh, letter D here, no person may be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of the law, without due process of the law, and no private property shall be taken for public use without just compensation. Now, the Fifth Amendment is basically repeated again in a poorly written 14th Amendment, a poorly written 14th Amendment, as Julian highlighted. But what the 14th Amendment did, particularly as it pertains to no person may be deprived of life, liberty, and property without due process. The federal government made themselves a watchdog over the states, as opposed to the states being a watchdog over the federal government. And the 14th Amendment has just opened the door for federal intrusion. Okay, the Sixth Amendment. The accused has, is entitled to a speedy and public trial. The accused has the right to be tried by an impartial jury. The jury must be selected from the state and district where the offense occurred. The defendant is entitled to be confronted by his or her accusers. The defendant is entitled to have a compulsory process for the obtaining of a witness. And this is relevant to those cases when people don't want to get involved. So the, the, the defense has the right to obtain a witness on his or her behalf. And in letter G, an accused person is entitled to have the assistance of counsel for his or her defense. So the court has to provide for defense. Okay, the Seventh Amendment deals with common law or civil lawsuits and has two parts. A, in suits of common law, where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved. And then no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise re-examined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of common law. And this involves the judge cannot su substitute his or her personal opinion for the findings of fact by a jury. The judge cannot overrule the jury in terms of his or her opinion. And that is another form of a check and balance that the founders put in on the system because maybe not all laws are just. However, when someone is being accused of breaking the law, maybe the jury can even things out by looking at the evidence and saying, this is unfair. This person, no, this is not right. And then the Congress goes back or that state legislature can go back and change that law. Okay, the Eighth Amendment, 
The Eighth Amendment has three parts. The first part provides that excessive bail shall not be required. The second part provides that the defendant shall not have excessive fines imposed. And then thirdly, no cruel and unusual punishment. Okay, back to you, Jolene, for the Ninth and Tenth Amendment. Thank okay. you all for listening. <laughs> Good job, honey. So amendments of four through eight really just covered the rights of the accused. Because remember, up until this point in history, people were... Uh, accused of something thrown into the dungeon and that was pretty much it and even English law if you were let's say uh, accused of treason uh, they could hang you disembowel behead you quarter your parts and you know bury you in different parts of the land so it was really gruesome and they just wanted they were a little sensitive to this fact that you know people that were accused of wrongdoing really had no recourse throughout history. And so they wanted to protect uh, the accused. So amendments eight and nine are very similar. The ninth amendment basically says, look, people have more rights than those that might just be listed here in the constitution. The enumeration in the constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage the others retained by the people. Okay, so citizens can claim all the rights that belong to them. And, and um, even if they're not mentioned here, that doesn't assume that they don't have them. And then the 10th Amendment just places the power back to the states and the people. Uh, so limited and few uh, um, rights should be given to delegated to the federal government. All others shall be retained with the uh, states respectively or to the people. So this amendment was just designed to fix the chains of the constitution on the agencies and elected officials of the federal government. Now constitutional authorities agree that this 10th amendment is the most widely violated provision of the entire constitution. That Why is that? Because they're, they become too big and bloated and powerful and are, are overreaching and 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 we'll learn that because of the disruption of some uninspired amendments primarily 16 and 17th has allowed the federal government to get big and um, have a lot of money at their uh, um, you know at their disposal and so thomas jefferson said i believe the states can best govern our internal concerns and the general government should govern our external ones. So the external federal duties Jefferson envisioned was, you know, provide for the common defense, ensure safety, provide for the general well-being, uh, deal with foreign, uh, you know, relationships and protect all the border, protect the border and everything else. So all the rest of those details internally should be had by the states. Only limited and carefully defined powers should be delegated to the government. So we got 20 enumerated powers with the legislative branch, six responsibilities for the president, and 11 different types of disputes that the federal courts can hear. And, and then everything else was supposed to be determined uh, by the people and, and the because they're the closest to the problems. So they best know how to solve their problems. So out of the um, 189 suggested amendments, like Al talked about, they were able to whittle it down to 10 amendments. And this is what we have as our um, Bill of Rights. So you can see that the founding fathers didn't want the federal government to serve as a watchdog 
over the states. It was the states' responsibilities to protect their people. And if the states failed to function in protecting its citizens, then the founders wanted pressure to build up, wanted the voice of the people to be known uh, to their school boards, to their uh, county commissioners, to their state legislators, and to the government. And this would force a correction within the confines of the state without any interference from the federal government. Okay, this is what our founders had envisioned. So some would say that anything more or less than what our founding fathers gave us would come of evil. Uh, this constitutional law of the land that they gave us. And we're going to study next week amendments uh, 11 through 27. And we're going to see if there were some uninspired evil amendments that came after our founders. Remember, uh, Amendment 11 and 12 our founders did give us those, and we'll talk about what those were. But um, 13, 14, and 15 came after the Civil War, 60 years after our founders gave us the Constitution. And then 16 through 27 came in the 1900s, and that's where some of the real mischief uh, began to occur. Mm -hmm. And so, whew, I always feel like doing this after we teach seminar to any class, because we are really cruising through some meaty stuff, the Constitution that most you know, law students take three years to figure out where, you know, we're, we're going to try and teach it to you in four hours. So it's so important if I really could encourage you over the next 48 hours to please review this section three, because it, it, it's been shown that if you over the, the, the last 48 hours of learning something, if you go over and review it, it increases your retention by some, say, almost 50%. So um, please review section three. That's a good reminder for our kids who come home from school and say they don't have any homework. Yeah, yeah you do. <laughs> you have something to do every day that will help you retain it. So when it comes time to take your test, you're ready to go. Yes. So good. Can I just give uh, a little recommendation and enabling, <laughs> we got so many lights here, enabling the people. This is such an excellent way to teach your children the 27 amendments. So it has a little picture, 14th amendment. And then on the back, while they're looking at this little picture, it explains in very simple terms what, what it is. <laughs> So you are learning along with your kids what these 27 amendments are. So Vivian will put this in um, the chat. Thanks, Vivian. Thank you, Vivian. Now, everybody, uh, I would really recommend getting your third manual. <laughs> the attacks on the charter of our freedom. If you don't have it yet, get this manual. So you'll have it ready uh, when we start in two weeks from now. And this is a very fascinating seminar. Everyone is, um, you know, it might cause you to go get a gallon of ice cream and, and go to your closet because you, you'll realize, wow, there have been some really evil forces uh, at bay for a long time to destroy this nation. But once again, when you know how it got broke, you know how to fix it. And, and we're all about healing of America. Can I give you one more recommendation? It's a eight minute YouTube and a nine minute YouTube called The Tale of Two Constitutions. The Tale, T-A-L-E, The Tale of Two Constitutions, YouTube, Thomas Jefferson Center. So if you Google that, up will come two parts, an eight minute a Tale of Two Constitutions and a nine minute. And really it is the constitution that our founders gave us 
and the constitution that we are operating under today. And it has a really some good visuals. So it will help you understand, you know, what, what, what our founders intended and why our constitution looks a little bit differently today. So um, that and the most political, powerful office in the world. Uh, YouTube are, are two really good ones that I uh, could recommend. Well, all right, we did it. I hope that, you know, as we continue to look to God and we continue to keep that family closed and we continue to study uh, the constitution from the viewpoint of the founders, that we will stay anchored in hope that we won't get depressed and discouraged. We won't turn to the ice cream or maybe just a, a friendly dose uh, on an ice cream cone, not the whole gallon <laughs> that I sometimes like to go for when I'm feeling a little down. But as we do these things, God will put into our hearts what, what we can individually do to be a part of the healing. And we have a specific seminar for it that talks about healing. So Al, I'm going to give you the last word tonight. We love to go to sites of significance so i would encourage you this summer if you already had made plans it's fun to go to the beach and go to cancun and hawaii and so forth but it's equally fun to go to these sites to see history and so we can learn from it so we don't repeat some of the same mistakes and then we can have a better understanding of what the sacrifices that they made before so that we can have what we have today